It'll be helpful for you to have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 5. As we enter into Mark chapter 5, we're really interrupting a field trip with Jesus, which we began last week at the end of Mark chapter 4. Jesus in Mark 3 has chosen his disciples. The, the Hebrew word in, for disciple means uh, is telmedim. So he's called his telmedim, these 12 disciples together. And these new students, as you look back in Mark chapter 3 and 4, have been listening to instructions from the rabbi. And like any good teacher, now Jesus is taking his students on a field trip to see if they've been paying attention to what he's been saying. This is not unlike if you were in biology or chemistry. The teacher tells you things out of the text, but then you have to go over and see if it works in the lab. Or it would be the same as if you're an athlete. You, you learn the plays from the playbook, but then you have to go see what do these plays look like on the field. And that's exactly what Christ is doing here. He's given some instructions, and now he's going to take them on the field or in the lab and see what they've learned. You and I know that what happens in the lab often looks different than what happens or what looks like in the textbook. And we're going to find that out. That that idea of the uh, the instructions look differently when you're in the playing field than they do sometimes when you're just reading out of the book reminded me of the encounter that Jill had with Aslan in the silver chair. Remember that she came into Narnia and she's been given these instructions by Aslan and Aslan says this to Jill. She's, he's trying to help her to remember the signs or the instructions. And he says this, Here on the mountain I have spoken to you clearly. Here on the mountain the air is clear and your mind is clear. And as you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. The signs or the instructions which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. So last week in Mark chapter 4, we saw that the air thickened for the disciples. They had been given this instruction in Capernaum on the comfortable shores of their home base, and they get out and they find out that the instructions in their comfortable, familiar shores uh, doesn't look quite the same. Remember the parable of the sower? The, the disciples are sitting there learning about soil and seeds, and the seed falls on different soil, and one of the seed falls into the, the thorny ground, and it, and it grows up, but quickly the thorns begin to choke it out. And the thorns, Christ says in 4.18, are the cares of this world, and the desires or the harmful overlongings. They have a longing for something is, that is good, which is fine. But Christ is saying there are certain desires, certain good things you have an overlonging for. And when they become overlongings, then they get in the way of me. And about halfway across the playing field of the Sea of Galilee, waves rose up like great thorny vines and began to choke the disciples. They've heard the instruction. They get about halfway onto the field and these waves come up 
like great thorny vines and they wrap themselves around the disciples throat and they begin to choke the disciples. And I think one of the things that disciples learned was that their desire for other things was greater than their faith in Christ. One of the things that the disciples learned was that their desire for other things was greater than their faith in Christ. Now, if you were here last week or you're just familiar with the story, you're saying, Paul, what other things are you talking about? I mean, they just rode out into the lake, a storm raised up, and they're just trying to save their lives. And I'm saying that's the other thing. Their lives got in the way of their faith in Christ. You see, we, we tend to think it, it's other things. We, we don't want to have our car or our house or something get in the way of things. But Christ is saying, your life, your own life, your desire to have your life, your way can get in the way of having faith in me. The disciples were terrified when Jesus calmed the storm. Because he was telling them that faith in him, absolutely undivided attention on Christ is more important than your life. Absolute, undivided attention and focus on Christ is more important than your life. And when the disciples saw that they were the seed on the thorny ground at this point, they became terrified. It might terrify us as well. You see, things on the field can look differently than they do in the textbook. You and I casually read the parable of the sower. It's very familiar. Maybe we just kind of read through it and we just go, yeah, yeah, we got that information down. The seed falls among the thorns. We put our Bibles down and we assume that we just shouldn't have a house or a car or education or a position, our bank accounts or retirements. None of those things should choke out our faith in Christ. And then Christ takes the disciples out on the Sea of Galilee and he raises the bar dramatically. See, we thought he was just talking about cars and homes and retirement accounts and education and, ex- and positions. We don't want those things to get in the way. And he's saying, no, your life can't get in the way of me. I'm raising the bar for you. Do you hear what I'm talking about, disciples? You can be the seed that you think is in good soil. But as soon as you get out on the, out on the sea, the thorns begin to choke and your life becomes more valuable And your life chokes out real life in Christ. John chapter 12. Anyone who loves this life, Jesus says, anyone who loves this life in this world will lose it. I think this lesson terrifies us as modern day disciples because so many of us have erroneously thought about Jesus 
this way. Jesus is around mostly to save us from storms. I mean, I thought one of the main reasons Jesus comes is to protect our lives, to grant me health and prosperity while I'm here. Surely he wouldn't intentionally lead me like a lamb into the teeth of wolves. And what we learned last week, if you weren't here last week, you just heard a little synopsis of last week's sermon, that the answer to that question is yes. Jesus Christ does intentionally lead you into the storms because he wants your undivided attention on him. Well, we're still walking behind the disciples. Here we get into our text, Mark chapter 5. We're, we're picking up some information. We're walking maybe a little bit more carefully about the lessons that we're learning. We're keeping our eyes open. I'm just trying to ask questions. We're reading through this together. I'm asking some questions. I'm making some observations. I'm leaving you with questions. Somebody came up to me last week and they just said, I'm just, I got more questions now than I had before. And I said, well, good. That's where I want you to be. We're, we're here just digging it up so you can take it home as a disciple and begin to process through what is it that Christ is saying. First thing that we're going to observe, and these go pretty much by your outline in the handout, is our role in carrying Christ. What is our role in carrying Christ? Remember, the, remember we're going back. We're going back to the instructions and then we're moving into the field trip. We're going back to the instructions of the growing seed. Look back in chapter four, verse 26 through 29. Jesus says this. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and he rises at night and day and on the the seed sprouts and grows. He does not know how the earth produces produces by itself. First, the blade, then the ear. Then the full grain and in the ear. So that's the instruction. What's the role of the farmer? What's the role of the man in the little parable? It's just to scatter the seed. That's all that, that this parable is talking about for the man. The entire emphasis of this little parable, this little piece of instruction, is on the seed. Whether he sleeps or he doesn't, whether he gets up or intends to it, he doesn't even know how. It seems like all by itself, the seed has an energy. It has a life. It doesn't have anything to do with the man. The man just simply is scattering the seed. And that's the role that we have in carrying Christ. Now, we look at this part of the demon-possessed man named Legion, and you read these 20 verses and you ask yourself this question, What part do the disciples have to do with this account? You hear the disciples all the way through this account. The only place they're mentioned is in verse one. They came to the other side. (laughs) That's the only mention of the disciples in the whole 20 verses. Now, we don't know what happened. We know that they didn't even get to the other side except for by Christ's help. So it's all by Christ. But they row the boat and we don't know exactly what happened. But I just sort of imagine it this way. All right. So you're not going to write this down as the gospel. I'm just imagining it this way. 
The disciples have gotten through this storm. They're rowing to the other side. They're awfully tired. And the docking port is a graveyard. And in the air is the foul odor of a hog farm. 2,000 hogs strong, just maybe on the other side of the hill. You maybe can't quite see them, but boy, you can smell them from a good distance. You know that smell if you've been up I-40. And so they've landed in a graveyard. There's this foul odor of hogs or swine, which for Jewish men is just completely out of character for them. And who's the greeting party? A naked man, or according to Matthew, two naked men running and screaming at you as you land on their turf. Now, all it says in the text is that Jesus got out of the boat. And I sort of imagine this. Jesus gets out of the boat and the disciples are go, see you, Jesus. I mean, we're, that's too much, man. We're, we're done. I mean, we couldn't hardly get through the storm. This kind of thing, forget about it. And we don't know, but that's all that they did. That's all that we know that the disciples did. The only thing they did was deliver Jesus. Just like the parable said that they should do. Their role is simply to deliver Christ. Just to scatter the seed. How it gets out, how it grows, we don't know. We do know He's called us to deliver. And that's what the disciples do. And what an incredible harvest happens after this. You go back and you read the instructions of the parable of the little mustard seed. An incredible thing happens, and that's exactly what happens because the disciples were at least faithful enough to deliver Christ into a very dark place. That's our role. That's our responsibility. And notice the turning point for the man or the men is verse 6. And when he saw Jesus. Somehow, Zane saw Jesus Christ. The delivery system was a couple of college girls. Who probably didn't even know what they were doing. But if you would just deliver Jesus Christ, you have no idea what might not happen in somebody's life. It'd be incredible. That's our role. Now, Jesus could have used any way to deliver himself. We know that he certainly could have just walked across the lake and gotten there by himself. But his choice is to honor us by using us to be the delivery system. The second thing I want to notice and just observe here are the conditions to which we are called to carry Christ. Let's look at the conditions. Remember the instructions. The parable of the lamp. We've heard it. We've been listening. Now we're out here on the field. The parable of the lamp is the lamp has to go out into dark places. And it's not supposed to be underneath the bowl. It's not supposed to be underneath the bed. It's supposed to be up on a stand where everything can get exposed. Whatever is hidden can be revealed. And we're the stand. We're supposed to go out and stand in dark places and hold up the light and the life of Christ so that all the people in the dark area around us can see Christ. 
In Jesus's day, if you were a Jew living in Galilee, you probably would have been one of the most biblically literate people in the day. This particular area, Galilee, was an area of very strong families, very strong learning of the Bible. They were passionately devoted to their faith and generally they were more resistant to the decadence of the Greek culture that was sort of invading Israel. Certainly a lot more resistant than the people who lived in Jerusalem. And so these 12 Galilean men, very steeped in strong families, resistant to the culture, not allowing the culture to penetrate their biblical worldview, holding themselves together, trying to trying to hold down the fort, so to speak. Would often look across the six miles across the Sea of Galilee and they'd see the mountains in the background and they would know over there are the pagans. The Decapolis. What does that sound like? Very Greek, the ten cities. Some have called this area the land of the seven. It's, it was understood that when Joshua came into the land of Canaan, the seven tribes or the seven nations that God was driving out of Canaan were supposed to have gone and settled in this very area. By the time Jesus arrives, the area had been resettled by Greeks. It was well known for lewd lewd theaters, nude athletic contests, gladiators, and child sacrifice. Many scholars assume when Jesus told the parable about the prodigal son, remember he went off to a foreign country and he lived in wild living, They say Jesus was referring to this area, the Decapolis, which what happened to the prodigal son? Where did he end up? What what did he end up feeding? Pigs. Well, so it fits, at least from what we know of this context. You can imagine how staggered the disciples must have been when Jesus said. Hey, guys, let's go to the other side. Uh, we don't go to the other side. And I'm wondering what Jesus is trying to teach all of his disciples by making the other side the first place he takes his people on a field trip. The other emphasis we see is the description of legion. Now, this is a very bizarre sort of story. But what we know is that legion lived out in the tombs. And apparently was nearly naked. A wild man who lived amongst the people who were dead. Probably claw-like hands, all scraped and scarred from just laying around, but also at night he, he he would slash himself. He would tear at his own flesh. 
And you can imagine in the area surrounding all the little boys and girls as they laid together at night, whispering the little ghost stories about Legion. Did you hear Legion? Because when it was still at night, you could hear them. Hell! Way off in the distance. Probably one of the most difficult times was when somebody died and you had to go out and bury somebody. What are you going to do about Legion? And so you'd send sort of this armed group out there who would chain him up and hopefully the chains would just sort of last long enough so you could get your near relative buried and get out before a legion would, would break open the chains and come screaming at you. No one could bind him. Notice the emphasis. It says over and over again, no one, no one, no one could do anything with legion. And it seems to be that Christ is intentionally leading his followers into storms that, humanly speaking, were impossible. The disciples could not save themselves from the storm on the sea. They tried and they couldn't do it. The disciples could not do anything with legion. No one could do anything with legion. I would assume that when Jesus Christ later says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And when he said that to his disciples, the disciples probably thought about Legion and the Decapolis. Our role is to carry Christ into dark places. I talked last week about Adoniram and Ann Judson, missionaries to India. In 1813, Adoniram and Ann had already left New England. Very comfortable place for them to be and decided to become missionaries in the east. And they landed in India. Quickly, because of the greed of the uh, India Trading Company from Britain, uh, they were outcast. They were sent away from India And in 1813, they started sailing for west for Burma. Burma was a land with millions of people without one known Christian. During the voyage, Anne gave birth to their first child who died without a name and was dropped into the Indian Ocean. When they arrived, Burma, by their own description, was dark Cheerless and unpromising. That sounds like the Decapolis. Dark, cheerless, and unpromising. Rats lived in the sewage of the streets. Torture and mass execution were common, especially amongst those people who came with other religions. It was six years before the Judsons saw their first convert. Six years In 1824, the Judsons, having buried their second child, a son, moved inland from Rangoon, which was on the coast, to a town called Ava. Not long after their move to Ava, the British invaded Burma. And everyone thought, well, if you're from the western side of the continent or the uh, world, then you must be an enemy. 
And there was a tyrant that lived in Ava. So he rounded up anybody who was Western and he rounded up Adniram Judson. He was imprisoned. He was considered a spy for the British Empire. He was put in one room with 100 men. At night, they were shackled together by their feet. They were hung upside down so that only their head and their shoulders laid amongst the rat-infested sewage all night long. During this two-year period, they moved the men around. Anne was constantly trying to find her husband. She gives birth to their third child, a daughter. She walks every day in the 180-degree heat. She has to take care of Adniram. Nobody in the jail would take care of him. They don't care if they die. So somebody from the outside had to come and give little food scraps and find ways to feed the people that they love that were in prison. And Anne did that for two years. Because of her weakened condition, her breast milk ran out. And at night, she would run around in the nearby villages begging native women to nurse her child. Finally, after two years, Judson was released. Anne and the baby were weakened by the ordeal. And just months after him returning home, she dies and then the baby dies. It's around 1827 and Judson sinks into a terrible spiritual depression that doesn't lift until 1831. You see, you and I, we read about scattering the seed to every corner of the earth. We think about being the light of Christ. We think about shining like a star in the universe, going into all the world. And when we read about it, when we hear the instructions, we say, send me. But when we see what happens on the field, the consequences on the field, then we're a little less anxious to volunteer. We have to fall to the ground, die like a seed in order for the gospel to be spread around the world. The consequences of spreading or scattering the seed we see clearly here, just as there's a great description of Legion in his former state. Now there's this description of him in verse 15. The townspeople come out. And now he's sitting there. Imagine being one of the townspeople. Every time you've come out, you've been wary Is he going to jump out behind some rock and scare you? You listen for his chains rattling around. And now you come out and he's sitting there. Possessed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now he's self-controlled. He's clothed. He's not naked. Paul says in Galatians that we are new creations. And so we are clothed with Christ. 
So Christ is sitting there, and now this brand new creation is sitting there, clothed with Christ. I didn't know Zane a year ago. But from his description, he was different than he is today. And now we see Zane and we say, he's clothed with Christ. There's something different about him. And everyone noticed he was in his right mind. You see, Jesus, who by his own family was accused of being out of his mind, had put legion into his right mind. So we scatter the seed. And what happens? The least likely candidate. The person we think never is going to understand who Christ is responds immediately. And the people that we think might want to know something about Christ, the community of people in the Decapolis come out and they see Legion and they have this unusual reaction, maybe not so unusual. They're not relieved. You see, you would think you'd be relieved. Finally. No more ghost stories. Finally, no more worry about burying our relatives. Finally, we can be out here in safety. And instead of being relieved, they're terrified and they beg Jesus to go away. Isn't that amazing? The seed falls on different soil. And the rich soil of legion produces great fruit. But the hard soil of the community, they begged Jesus to leave. And I think this is the reason why. I think the community is more concerned about its own lifestyle than eternal life. We don't want somebody like that coming in and messing with our lifestyle. I've got to have my lifestyle, my weight. And if he wants to enter in on that, fine. But he has to come in the door that I open for him. He can't come in and just make something totally new. And people in this community are more concerned about their lifestyle than eternal life. Can you imagine living in a community like that? Well, the last and final point is to carry on. Adoniram Judson wasn't perfect. I'm not holding him up as some kind of perfect model. But Judson learned what it meant to hate his life, to die like a seed, to end his all-out effort in preserving his own life, Judson was more concerned about eternal life than lifestyle. And in 1831, the fog of depression lifted after 17 years of mostly dying. Thousands began to inquire about Christ in Burma. People walk hundreds of miles and would say, are you the Jesus Christ man? Can you tell us about Christ? One quote says this, after a hundred mile journey, sir, we have seen a writing that tells of an eternal God. Are you the man who gives away such a writing? If so, please pray, give us one for we want to know the truth.
before we die. At Judson's death in 1850, there were 7,000 baptized believers, 63 churches, and 123 missionaries planted in Burma. Judson had learned how to die to himself so that Christ might be manifested in a way like a little seed in a bigger way than we could ever possibly imagine. Legion is clothed with Christ, and Christ gives him a very unusual charge. Legion begs to go with Christ. Christ gets back in the boat, and Legion understandably is saying, let me go back with you. And you would have thought that Jesus would have said, sure. And he says, no. I'm not sending you to the other side. I'm sending you back home, you and this other man with you. Go and tell your friends and your family. And notice this, how the Lord. Verse 19, tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Who was doing something for Legion? Christ. So what does that make Christ? The Lord. In case you're any confu- any confusion about that, Jesus Christ is the Lord. That's what he thought. That's what everyone else thought. And he says, go home and you tell him how much the Lord has done for you. Now, we don't know what happened to this new man who was formerly called Legion. Doesn't the Bible doesn't say what we do know. And you flip through to Mark chapter eight. Jesus reenters the area called the Decapolis. And four thousand people are there waiting for instruction. And Jesus feeds them spiritually and physically. Now, I really wasn't sure how to wrap up this sermon. I, I thought, gosh, if you're a, if you're a seeker, what would you hear? You might be terrified. I'm, I'm not sure this is what I was looking for. I was looking for somebody who would lead me out of storms and not into storms. There's no other way home except for Jesus Christ. And he's going to take you to a place that passes all understanding in every storm. If we could just hear Adoniram Judson right now. It was worth it. It was worth it. I would do it all again for Christ. You might be here, and I wouldn't know if I saw it, I don't think. You might be a little seed planted. You think you're growing, but you're just about ready to get choked out. You're not the real thing. You've heard it. You think you've responded. But life is going to begin to boil and bubble up. And all this love that you had for Christ now is going to get choked around your neck. And he's not performing the way he should be performing. And I'm out of here. 
I just want to encourage you. Don't, don't be that person. Hang in there. Keep working out your salvation. Keep pouring yourself into Christ. And He'll keep pouring Himself back to you. All of us, in some measure, are either called to the dark places in Wilmington, North Carolina, or the dark places in Burma. Nobody is exempt from that. And my fear for a group like this is they would be so into Bible study, so into instruction, so into the comfortable side of Capernaum. Give me more. Help me understand more. I need more information that you never go to the other side. And therefore, you're not really hungry for Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, somebody in our lives walked across a terrifying line and spoke to us about Jesus Christ. We've seen it today with Zane. We've seen it in our own lives. And there are people who will walk hundreds of miles to hear What we have to say, if we would simply learn how to fall to the ground, die to ourselves, simply carry Christ to the darkest regions that we know. It absolutely terrifies us. So we, like the disciples, are going to need your help to even get out of the boat. For those who are tormented by their own internal demons of lust, pride, greed, possessions of every kind, may they see Christ alone as legion soul. And may you transform their lives at this moment, I pray in the name of Christ. Amen.